and I and I think right, and I think that's a that's a big deal to being uh to being a strong Bible teacher and part of what we're doing. And I and I want you to be in your Bibles to Genesis twenty nine because that's where we're we're fixing to jump in. Uh, it, but if guys, if we just read the Bible as a history book, you you're really not going to get anything out of it. Uh, I've I've said this to you a hundred thousand times. The Bible is the only book that you're going to ever read where the author is always present. You've probably never read a book where the author was actually there with you. Probably never. I mean, I don't know how many books I've read, but the 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 Bible is the only book that I've ever read where the Holy Spirit is right there, like he's he's there. And um, and in one of my discipleship trainings where I was uh, talking to some guys, Chris was in it. Uh, I was telling them that, you know, you'll read the Bible today and it will apply to the situation that you're going through in your life right now today. And you will come back to that scripture two years, three years from now, after you've made it, made your round through the scriptures, however it works for you. And then you'll read that scripture again and you'll be in a totally different area of your life. But that scripture will still be relevant to that point in your life. And and we're gonna we're gonna see some of that in in Jacob's story tonight. Um, there's there's a lot of things that happen in Jacob's story. Uh, just like we when we covered it last week. Last week, if you did not hear last week's uh, lesson, I challenge you to go back and listen to it because um, I begin to point out to you the divine providence of God, which actually means the, the the providence of God means that everything's in His control and that that He's not forgetting about anything and nothing's caught him off guard and nothing's taken him by chance. Um, and so I, I begin to point that out in Jacob's story because we know that Jacob has left his house, uh, left his home with, with his dad and his mom and his brother's wanting to kill him. And he's, he's heading off to a place where he's, he's actually looking for a wife and he's looking for his uncle Laban and uh, he's going to a place called Haran and, and it's a land that he's never been in before. He don't really know where he's going other than Go that way, go east, young man, you know. And and so he heads that way. But when he shows in this place, there's there's three shepherds at a way. And and he, he shows up, and so immediately, because Jacob is a shepherd and these guys are shepherds, there there's there's continuity, you know, there's there's like mindedness and, and they're they're thinking. And so automatically he's welcomed because these guys they, they think alike. They're on the same page here. And so they're thinking alike. And so not only that, but he's like, hey, do you know a guy named Laban? They're like, yeah, we know Laban. Matter of fact, Laban's doing pretty good. And if you'll look at the dust cloud coming down the road, that's his daughter, Rachel. And immediately, you know what Jacob thinks? You didn't hear this last week, but immediately Jacob says, she's single. He ain't even met her yet. How does he know she's single? Because married women are not shepherdesses. Only single women are. Because a married woman is supposed to be at home taking care of the house. But because she's single, she's got time to be out in the field taking care of sheep. So all of that to give you a backdrop about what is about to happen. <clears throat> because we're learning that, uh, that God does not work off a of happenstance. He doesn't work off of luck. Things that happen in your life is not lucky, and that's why I challenged you last week to take the word lucky when it comes to things that happen in your life. Take that, take that word out of your vocabulary because uh, you can't be blessed and lucky. 
can't be. You're either, you either are or you're not. So you're either blessed by God or you're just a, a lucky guy. So let's begin reading in verse number 9, chapter 29, and uh, we'll go through verse number 12. While he was still speaking, he being Jacob, speaking to the shepherds, the three shepherds there, Rachel came with her father's sheep, <clears throat> for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's, uh, he, he, of Laban, his bro mother's brother. Now, now you need to pay close attention why the author keeps saying his mother's brother, his mother's brother, his mother. He's trying to let you know and make it very clear that it's no mistake here. There's not four or five Labans in the, in the town of Haran. This is his mother's brother. And if you don't believe it, just keep reading verse number 10 where it says his mother's brother about four or five times. Uh, he wants you to make that clear. In verse 11, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So just to give you a little bit more of the backstory to these scriptures, the shepherds are gathered there. And they're gathered here in this place because this is the location of the well where all the flocks of the area are going to be watered. Now, the reason the shepherds are gathered here waiting and not watering the sheep is because there's a large stone covering the well. Back up to verses 7 and 8 in your scriptures there. And let's read that so that we can have a full understanding. He said, Behold, it is still high day, and it is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. This is Jacob telling them how to do their job. This is showing them, showing you that Jacob is a shepherd. He, he knows how to handle these, these sheep. Verse number 8, But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So we don't know all the details as to why things are the way they are here. Uh, but we're, and we're left to suspect that a couple of things are true. Uh, so, number one, if, if there's a couple of things that are true about this, maybe this was <clears throat> just the custom or the rule of this area, of this land. Like here in our town, if it was a bunch of us who were shepherds uh, and there was one major well and, and we gathered together, maybe there was a, a, a rule between all of us or an understanding between all of us that there's a certain time that we would gather our flocks together, maybe as a safety mechanism, a safety precaution. Maybe there's pirates out there, so to speak, or, or somebody who would like to come by and, uh, and, and would just take your flock away. You know, uh, what would they call them? Uh, people that would take your, they what? Banditos? Uh, rustlers, that's, that's sheep rustlers, kind of something like that. Uh, so if you think about that, you know, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's a safety mechanism that they have built into their... Uh, into their civilization. But the, maybe another one was the stone covering the well there. Maybe that stone was just too heavy for one person to move. So all of them waited for everyone to gather in order to have enough strength to move it. Now, I tend to believe, uh, number two, I tend to believe that the stone was just too heavy for one person to move, and I'll explain that a little bit more in detail later. Um, I believe, or not believe, but the way I study the Bible and the way I teach you guys is through a method called typology. Typology means that things in the Old Testament that are physical, 
relate to something directly spiritual in the New Testament. So Old Testament physical, New Testament spiritual. They, they are almost exact mirrors of each other. So whenever I look at these scriptures, I see a single guy looking for a wife, right? Now, think about Jacob and what's actually going on in his life. Mama said, go, get out of here. We don't want you to marry a pagan woman. Go to Laban's house, my brother, and find you a wife. So that's what, that's what son does. He comes to the well. It has a huge stone covering it. Uh, it usually takes multiple men to move it. But whenever Jacob sees Rachel, something just wells up inside of him and he exercises the first of two uh, written uh, feats of strength in his story. This is his first one. The second one, does anybody know just right offhand, what is Jacob's second feat of strength that we know of in the Bible? Anybody? where he wrestles the Lord. He wrestles God, <laughs> and he survives. Like, that's a pretty big deal. He walks away limping, but that's, that's about all that it was. So this is, here, here's the idea. Just kind of picture this from a, from a man's point of view. Just us being, you know, carnal, looking at, looking at these scriptures at a guy who sees this good-looking woman, then all of a sudden he's just stronger than he man. All of a sudden, you know, just this good-looking lady comes up there. So Jacob moves the stone all by himself. Maybe he flexes his muscles as he girts up his man skirt, you know, and, and he bends down and he grabs the stone and he throws the stone out of the way and he waters Rachel's flock for, flock for her. And then when he's done, he walks over to the later lady and lays a big fat kiss on her lips and Rachel's so shocked that she runs off and tells her daddy. That's what we just read. I just gave you, I, I broke it down for you. There it is. But I know that's not the way things really were. But if you're, if you're just a guy reading it, that might be all that it looks like. But what really happened? So what probably really happened looked a little more like this. Jacob did see Rachel. He understands that she is a single daughter of his uncle. She's his cousin, but that's how things kind of went. They were very uh, distant related, so to speak, and he did have a feat of strength that wells up inside of him, but I don't necessarily think that this is because he wants to be a show-off more than I believe that he is excited about what's actually happening here. He's excited that God has brought him to this place at just the right time so that he could meet his Uncle Laban's daughter. Now, he probably had an idea in his mind, like this is one of Uncle Laban's single daughters. She's beautiful. And whenever you see a beautiful woman, all of a sudden you're able to do things that you would consider either very strong or very dumb. One or the other. Guys tend to, especially if it's been influenced by alcohol. You know, just beautiful women and alcohol make guys do stupid things. It doesn't say Jacob's drunk, nothing like that. But Guys tend to uh, tend to do a little extra whenever they're trying to impress somebody. That's, that's all I'm trying to say. Maybe he's saying, hey, this girl could be my wife. I better make a good impression here. And, you know, what lady doesn't want a man who can move a big rock, right? I mean, so maybe y'all ought to go home and move some rocks around, see, see what your lady thinks. And then the kiss, like Jacob comes and he, he kisses Rachel. But this wasn't a kiss on the lips. It's not a kiss on the mouth, but rather it's something more customary like a kiss on the cheek that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 13 where he says that you should greet one another with a holy kiss. So it was probably more or less uh, a kiss of, uh, on the cheek 
that was customary of saying greetings, hello, you are my family. Uh, and then after he kisses her, he says, I am your kinsman. And that's when she runs away. It's a, it's a sign of excitement because she runs away to go tell her father that, that her, their cousin is here and he, he's come in because they had a custom that whenever somebody came to town, you didn't go to the motel and stay in the motel because there weren't any. You opened your house and you took care of your, your relatives and stuff like that. Now, why in the world would Jacob start crying after he kisses Rachel? That's in verse number 11. And uh, I want you to consider with me just for a moment what's actually happened here. What all Jacob has been going through. Uh, he's been going through some, uh, some tough stuff, some pretty emotional stuff. You think about what all has happened at his house just within the last week, maybe the last month, I don't know. Uh, and, and, I mean, he, he's left his home and he has nothing. He has nothing. Like he, he don't, he, he's walking. He doesn't even have a steed to ride in on. He doesn't have any of these things. He doesn't have a pillow, right? Remember, he pulls up a rock. That's, that's what he lays on. He has nothing and his, his brother wants to kill him. His dad may die at any minute, any day, and he's going to a place that he's never been before. But, but remember, whenever he arrives in this place of Haran, God has proven to him that he's keeping his promise. Remember the promise that God made to him? He said that I will not leave you. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. And so whenever Jacob comes to this place, he's beginning to see that God is keeping his promise. He comes in. He sees these shepherds. He meets Rachel at the exact spot, at the exact time that he arrives into this place. And I think, me personally, I believe that the crying, the weeping, is a sign of thankfulness and overwhelming joy. He's happy. There is this, this sense of relief. Have you ever just cried because you were like, thank God this is done. It's taken care of. And all of a sudden, like there's this sense of relief that comes over you and you just don't know how to control it other than cry. And so whenever you look at it that way, you have to understand that, that Jacob comes into town looking for the family of Laban, and God made it happen. And when God make it, made it happen, it all happened at once. Jacob didn't have to force it. He didn't have to kick the door open. He didn't have to push the windows open. It all happened at one time. This was God looking at him saying, Jacob, you are mine. I am taking care of you. You're in the right place at the right time. Do y'all believe that kind of stuff happens? Well, maybe you do. Maybe you do. I, I do. I really believe. I believe in the little bitty small things, and I shared some of this stuff with you last week. But let me just tell you how, how God worked in a friend of mine's life this week. So I went home after, or went to my mom's house after church on Sunday, and uh, Pops has built some new bookshelves in the house, and uh, Mama had it cluttered up with a bunch of junk. I mean, it had just a bunch of junk in it. And she thought it looked good until Katrina got over there and said, Terry, we've got to do something about this. And so Miss Katrina starts, she said, bookshelves need books, right? Not trinkets and stuff that you have to dust. And so she goes in and she starts doing some decorating. So Mama goes in and she starts pulling out these old books. And she's got, she's got these old Bibles. She, she gave me my great-granddaddy's Bible that he wrote in. I had it. I got to get it recovered. The cover's just falling off of it, and I read notes all through it. But then, Uncle Eddie, she gave me, uh, she gave me Aunt Virginia's old Bible, and I opened that old Bible up, and she had, she had a note written to herself about her dear niece Margaret Ann and her new fiance Eddie Moore, and then, 
And then in that Bible, she said, she said, uh, I just pray that they will be happy. You know, she had the dates and all that stuff of when Eddie and Margaret was going to get married and all that stuff. And she had notes written in there about my dad and my mama and all these things. But I kept flipping through it and I came to this picture. Or, I mean, this, this little letter that she wrote, and, and I say a letter, but it, it was a paragraph, maybe five, six sentences, and it was, it was talking about this, this certain person. And I'm not going to share the name, but in here, it was all listed out the day that she had gotten saved. Aunt Virginia made records of it. The day she got saved, where she was at, the message that was preached, the man that preached it, how many people were in the church? I'm talking about it was detailed, and Aunt Virginia laid it out. Well, this is what was really, really strange about this. What are the odds that I would have opened that Bible on that day and found that little letter in that Bible just three days after I saw this lady at my uncle's funeral, and she came up to me and she said, I really need to talk to you. I said, okay, give me a call sometime. She said, I'll call you this next week. Perfect. Well, I had no clue what she wanted to talk to me about, but I took a snapshot of that, that little article or that little paragraph written about her, and I sent it to her. I said, look what I just found. She calls me, and she says, you will never believe how much I needed that because she was fighting in her spiritual life, wondering, like, is God here? Does God remember me? Am I saved? Why am I going through this? Why is this happening? And whenever I sent that to her, it was just like God saying, Hey, you remember what I did for you? Here's proof right here. And I, how in the world would I know? I didn't know that. But man, how God, His providence, He's got it all in His hands. It's all in His control. And whenever you will just be a vessel for Him to use... Man, it's just overwhelming sometimes, you know. And you've got this, this overwhelming joy that just comes up inside you sometimes. And whenever you're in the middle of a situation like that, and, and you realize that God has placed you as a puzzle piece in somebody else's puzzle so that He could make the connection between heaven and earth for that person, and you were one of the ones making contact, there's something in you that wells up and you just... You just can't help but cry. You know? You just, you just can't help it. And I kind of feel like Jacob's hanging between heaven and earth here just a little bit, and he's like, well, God, you really are taking care of me. You're keeping your promises, and you need to remember that God never makes a promise that he doesn't intend to keep. He always keeps his promises. Well, I don't, I don't know uh, about you, but sometimes... I think about whenever I read these scriptures, you know, well, just how heavy was the stone? How, I mean, how have y'all ever, did you think about that? Like, how heavy is that rock? I mean, if I wanted to water my sheep and nobody else was around, you know, I mean, if Jacob could move it, I probably could, right? I don't know. I don't really think it matters. I think it proves to us that it was a pretty heavy rock. Uh, if, it, if it takes several people to gather here... Uh, I mean, an average man couldn't move the stone, so it's heavy enough. I mean, it don't, it don't really matter how heavy it is. So the stone in the story, this is what I, want you to, what I want you to think about, and if you're a note taker or anything like that, I want you to focus or visualize that stone 
And I want you to make a connection with that stone and any burden. A stone and a burden, whatever it might be. All right, this the burden that's in your way, the burden that you're trying to carry, whatever it might be. And it makes me think about the Scripture where Jesus was talking. This is in Matthew 17, uh, 19. I'm not going to be spending much more time in Genesis. I'm going to be flipping around over in the New Testament a little bit. We might make it back to Genesis, but I'm going to be uh, jumping around. So if you want to follow me, you can. But uh, jot notes down and you can uh, go back and study them a little bit. But in Matthew 17, 19, and 20, this is what Jesus said to his disciples, all right? Now, you need to remember that uh, the disciples are dealing with a boy who is demon-possessed. And if you'll remember the story, it says that the demon often throws the boy into fire to try to kill him, right? So over Matthew 17, the disciples, they, they said to him in verse 19, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, Because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. He didn't say because of your little muscles. He didn't say because of, uh, of your little truck. You know, he didn't, he didn't say none of that. He said because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, was Jesus telling them that they could just believe that they could pick up a mountain and toss it out of their way? Hey, guys, just believe that you can pick up Mount St. Helens and just toss it out of the way. Is that what he was saying to them? No, of course not. That, that doesn't even make sense. That's a stone that's way too heavy for us, I believe. But what Jesus was trying to say was that if you believed in the one who has the strength, to pick up that mountain and move it, who has the power, who has the ability to pick up that mountain and move it, then the one who has the power and the strength and the ability could move that mountain for you. Jesus never encouraged anyone to search deep within themselves and find their personal inner strength. Tap into your personal inner strength. I get so sick of hearing people talk about that today. This, this personal well-being. And if you just think yourself through it, you can just heal the world. And I, Come on, man. I, you're, you're not that great. You know, you're just not. There, there are people out there that want to try to convince you all this, all this personal stuff that if you tap into it and you think long enough and you hum long enough, uh, it, it'll happen to you. If you just, if you just linger and moan and weep and cry long enough, then you'll tap into that down deep inside you and you can just accomplish anything that you want to, but it's not biblical. It's just not there. Jesus never told any of us to do that. However, he always encouraged his followers to depend and rely upon God to do the heavy lifting. He would always say, depend on me. Depend on God. Allow the Holy Spirit to be your strength. Let me be your salvation. Let me be your provider. He, that's what he always said. He never said anything about you doing it for you. He always said, let me be the one that does this. Since we're talking about Jacob and, and, and a well of water here, I think we need to uh, go on over to the book of John chapter 4. And let's, let's look at uh, what happened with Jesus whenever he met the woman uh, at the well. This was a Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, and, and this is what Jesus said to the woman about Jacob, and, or what this woman said to Jesus about Jacob. This is John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 7. Now, if you guys will, will, will remember, 
Uh, usually a Jew would not walk through the city of Samaria. The reason that they would not was because Samaritans are considered to be mixed breeds. They are, they are a part of what is known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. When Assyria came in and, and just went in and, and, and took Israel captive, they were tired of them always coming back and getting strong again, so they took them and they dispersed them across the known world. Ten of those tribes became what they call lost tribes. The Assyrians actually took them, began to breed with the women, began to mix their blood, so to speak, and they were not pure-blooded Jews any longer. There are only two tribes that, that actually ended up coming out of that uh, to, to remain pure tribes, and that was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And that's, you know, that's, that's a whole other history story there. But the ones that are considered Jews are the ones that they say they're pure-blooded, okay? The ones that are Samaritans, they are part Jew and part something else. But the Samaritans still claim Jacob as their forefather because that's where their heritage, some of their heritage comes from. So this is, what, this is the story that's compiled here whenever Jesus comes in contact with the Samaritan woman. So a woman from Samaria, in verse number 7, John 4, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir... You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, and his sons did, and his livestock too. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The well in these scriptures is not the same well that we see in Genesis 29. It's not the same well that Jacob's at here. It's a different well that Jacob passed down to his descendants, and this is where Jesus saw fit to meet this woman. And like I said, this was not a common meeting between Jews and Samaritans. So Jesus had a, a special thing going on here. He had this idea. He knew that this was a woman who needed, uh, who needed some attention here. But on this day, Jesus saw fit to talk to this woman about what he calls living water. Now, you need to know that the Old Testament... Uh, is the background to the term living water. You need to understand this, okay? Any scholar of the of what we would call the law and the prophets, you know, in the Old Testament, they would always say the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, because that's the scriptures that they had. They were living the New Testament, so they didn't have the New Testament. They only had the law and the prophets. So any scholar of the law and the prophets would have recognized the, the metaphor or the analogy immediately, but this woman didn't, and she thought Jesus was talking about water from some other well. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, I'm just, I'm just referencing these, but God actually refers to Himself as being the fountain of living waters. That's Jeremiah 2, 13. 
And then in Ezra chapter 47, 9 and Zechariah 14, 8, both of those prophets tell of a time when living water shall flow from Jerusalem. Now, if you keep following this down, this metaphor does not speak about a literal stream of running water or a literal well. No, it speaks of the knowledge of God. All right, I want you to listen to this. This speaks to and of the knowledge of God and His grace through Jesus Christ that provides cleansing, spiritual life, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And so whenever John writes about this story in his gospel, he writes this down because he sees what Jesus is doing. He sees Jesus as the living water, and this woman needed the living water that Jesus was going to provide. Jesus used this woman's need for physical water to sustain her life in a dry, hot, desert place to, to tell her that, that you're, you're going after this water, and, and I know that you need that water, but Jesus is coming to her using that, saying, hey, I've got something more. I've got something else that you need. He uses her need for physical water to show her a picture of her greatest need for spiritual transformation. And he does the same exact thing to every one of us today. We get into a situation and then God allows some preacher, some teacher, some musician, some somebody to come into your life and say, don't you see that what you're doing right now, what you're going through right now, is God trying to show you such and such and such and such, so that through this physical ailment in your body, God's trying to open your eyes to this spiritual transformation that He wants to take place. Can't you see that this was a, this was a stone much too heavy for this woman to move by herself? Look at the stone. How big was the stone that this woman's trying to move? Hey, Jesus looks at her and says, Hey, why don't you go get your husband? Because it would, be a, it would be a bit more formal if your husband would come out here. What did the woman say to Jesus? I don't have it. He said, You're right. You've had five of them. So what, what is Jesus saying? He, he's saying, Hey, I, I need you to understand that I'm not just some old Joe Blow here. I know who you are, and I can predict what you're going to say and what you're doing and where you've been. I know all this stuff. So Jesus comes in and He says, Hey, hey, this is a stone too big for you to move. This is a stone too big for you to move. She could have never been able to draw water, water from the well that springs up into eternal life that had Jesus not showed up at just the right moment and removed the barrier between her and her salvation. If Jesus had not moved that stone for her that day, would she have been able to drink from the well? She couldn't have. Now every Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 16. These will be some good scriptures for you to look at. Every Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And you know the resurrection celebration is the greatest celebration of all Christian celebrations. Because... It is the one single event that separates Christianity from all other world religions. Easter, the resurrection, is the one event that separates Christianity from every other world religion. You need to pay close attention to what I'm going to tell you. Almost all world religions share commonalities. 
they they have they have some commonalities. Most of them, uh, all of almost every one of them, they they believe in a higher power. They believe in a a creator of some sort, creation in some degree. All these religions also believe in community. That Christ, in the Christian community, we we call our community the church. The Jewish community, they would call it a synagogue or the temple or whatever. Some of them, are, they call them a mosque, and that's where they would get together. Then you have in these religions, they have a set of laws and morals. In the Christian uh, religion, we have the Ten Commandments, right? You have this set of laws, God's set of laws. And then you have this authority figure that kind of is the face of the, of, the, of the religion, whatever it might be. So in, in major, major Christian groups or major world religions, you have... Those, those authoritative leaders are the authority figure like Buddha, and you have Muhammad, and Jesus, right? You have these different people. But only Christianity celebrates the resurrection of their authority figure. Only Christianity celebrates the resurrection of their authority figure. Our Lord Jesus Christ, He died, and then He rose from the grave. None of the other ones have ever celebrated that. None of the other ones have ever claimed that. And you see, they might say, yeah, but none of, none of them were ever born of a virgin. Yeah, but they try to disprove that all the time. They try to say, ah, it's not true. There's no, there, you know, yeah, it's written down, but who's really to say that Mary was a virgin? Who really can prove it? You know, we, we go by faith and we believe it. But as you go down through Jesus' life and you, you read the, the evidence and you read the facts about his miracles and how he lived his life and how everything's began to stack. And even whenever they try to disprove to us that the resurrection is not true, even if all you had, which the Bible is not all we have, if all that we had was the Bible, we could not say that part of it is right and part of it is wrong. You've either got to take it all or you have to throw it all out. It's got to be one or the other. You, you can't just say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll just nitpick and take what we want to take out of it. And so whenever you look at it, if, if it's not true, why were there so many real-life people who are in other history books trying to disclaim it and just work it down? If, if they could prove that it wasn't true, where's the proof that it's not true? It's just not there. I'm not going to try to get into all that and prove it to you. I just want you to know that our Christian religion, our faith, we step out of the box apart from everybody else when it comes down to us talking about the resurrection of our authority figure who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Mark chapter 16, this is what Mark wrote on that Easter Sunday morning. It says, And they were saying to one another, they being the women who were on their way to the tomb, who will roll the stone for us, who roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And then looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So the custom of their day was to go to the tomb uh, of the deceased and anoint their bodies with perfume and oil and help preserve the body. In other words, we would call that embalming, right? But they, they had a different way of doing things. Now, in front of Jesus' tomb is a very large stone, a stone large enough that it took several people working together to move it. And this was a concern of these ladies. That's why we read in the Scripture where it says, who in the world is going to move the stone? We're not going to be able to get in it. We probably should have thought this through. These, one, these women are frantic. They're upset. Uh, Jesus has just died. It was the Passover. They couldn't get to Him. They couldn't spend the time that they needed to when He died to prepare His body. So they were going back to the tomb 
to follow up to anoint and to put oil on him uh, and perfume and all that to help preserve the body. But whenever they got there, they saw the tomb was rolled away. Now, uh, Matthew chapter 28, look at what's happening. You may say, well, well, who is it that rolled the stone away? You say, well, God did it. Well, sort of, sort of. God sort of did it. And that's why this is where Matthew picks up. And this is why you need all four of the Gospels to put the stories together. You pick up different details of the story from different people who write the story. It doesn't mean they contradict each other. It just means that if I got four of you guys in this room to write out a story about what happened here tonight, all of y'all's story would be the same, but it would be different. Does that make sense? So these guys are doing the same thing. Matthew 28, verse number 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, and then he sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. The miracle of the resurrection is not only what separates Christianity from all other world religions. It is the day Jesus moved the stone so that anyone who's thirsty could drink. Do y'all see it? There's a huge symbolism here. When I tell you that Jesus is on literally every page of the Bible, believe it. He's there. Taking Jacob all the way back in the beginning, before there was ever a Israel, before his name's ever changed to Israel, he's rolling this stone off of a well so that people could have access to life. Water is life. And all the way through the Old Testament, they're saying God calling himself living water. Fountains of water will flow. Jesus comes in and says, I am living water that will spring up within you. Wells of everlasting life. And he keeps talking about this over and over. And people are like, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. It just is complicated. And then all of a sudden, one day, all the people are standing outside of the tomb. How are we going to get in? We're just going to gather here, right? The tomb's there. It's too big. The, the stone's there. It's too big. We can't roll it away. Don't worry about it because the second Jacob has already rolled it away. He's already came in, moved the stone, not so Jesus could get out, but so that you could get in. Jesus never moved the stone so that he could get out. He only moved it so that you would have access to drink. It's been said that like, this, like that, that stone wasn't just rolled so Jesus could come away from that grave. He could have, he could have, just, he could have just vanished and came out. He didn't have to move that stone, but he, he, he did it because Jesus took on the responsibility of removing the stone that you couldn't move on your own. Now, how many times have you tried to move the stone that you just couldn't move on your own? I want you to just think about this. Let's just be honest. How many times have you tried to do it? How many times have you strained at quitting that thing in your life that has you bound, but you just don't have enough strength? How many times have you strained at fixing your marriage, but you just never could pull through? How many times have you tried to manage your home, run your business, correct your financial situation all by yourself, but then you discovered that you just didn't have the strength to get it done? You see, Jesus is the stone mover. He is the stone mover, and he's the one who has the ability to move the mountain out of your way. He never told you to have faith in yourself. Never. He said that you have to have faith in the one who has the strength, who has the power, who has the ability 
to move the mountain. You're not the mountain mover. Jesus is the mountain mover. He's the one that can roll the stone away. And when Jesus rose from that grave, He rolled away the greatest stone that has ever been in our way. That stone is called sin. And whenever He rose from the grave, He crushed death, hell, and the grave. He crushed all that. He rolled that sin away. But I want you to listen to this, all right, as I close. This will be the last thing I share with you. Just because Jesus rolled the stone away doesn't mean that you have approached the well to drink. Remember the old saying, you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink it. Jesus rolled the stone away to give you access. He wants to give you access. He has given you access. Jesus will never die on the cross again. He died once for all time. Once for all people, He's given you access. The question is, will you drink? Will you come to the well? And will you drink of the living water? It's all up to you. The way has already been opened, but you have to be willing to do just a couple of things. Are you willing to confess Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? Repent. Turn away from your ways, your evil ways, the sin in your life, and then follow after Him. Are you willing to do that? If you're willing to do that, you have to come to the well and drink. You see it? So even back in Jacob's day, he didn't realize what he was doing. He didn't know that even then, he was being a symbol. He was being a type of Christ in the Old Testament to roll the stone away so that the flock could be watered. And today, Jesus rolls the stone away. Message after message after message after message as the Holy Spirit pricks your heart, talks to you, shows you where you're lacking or where you fail. It doesn't mean that you're not saved, but one by one by one, stones that you are unable to move. Jesus is your stone mover. Ain't that good? It is to me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for uh, giving us this chance and this opportunity today just to be able to be reminded that you are our stone mover and that when we can't, you still can and you still will. And I pray, Father, today that you'll just continue to lead us and guide us and direct us, Lord, so that we uh, can be people who will lead flocks of people, droves of people to the well. I know we can't make them drink it, but we can lead them there. And we can introduce them to the stone mover. So that stones that are too heavy for them in their life can be moved by you with very little effort. And God, I just pray that we would be faithful to that and that we would remember God even in our own lives when we struggle and we have these hard things that come up, that we would consistently come to you and seek help and seek guidance from you. In Christ's name we pray and ask all these things. Amen.